impact of keratoconus on patient and refractive surgery practices. I think we all agree that there is a significant impact here. Review the incremental impact of keratoconus on visual outcomes and quality of life as the disease progresses. How do, how do your patients, how are patients affected as they develop keratoconus? Well, that's a surprising thing. Many patients don't realize they have this condition and they think their vision is deteriorating because they're getting older. And that's why we have this delay in diagnosis. And so it's not until it gets to a very significant stage where they really realize there's something wrong. Then they finally go in uh, and they get seen and then it's already very advanced. And then all of a sudden they're very upset and it can be very you know, disappointed if they've had previous refractive surgery. Uh, and so I think the key is that we have to be aggressive and try to see these patients more frequently, but it's difficult. They don't want to come in. They're seeing perfect. Eric, you, everyone here on the, on the call does a perfect job in LASIK and, and PRK and SMILE, whatever procedure. They've seen great for many years, but we miss the early signs because they're very subtle. I've followed patients for decades now with keratoconus, and there's no doubt in my mind that Keratoconus has a profound effect, not only in the physical, but also the psychosocial uh, aspects of these patients' lives as well. Um, any chronic debilitating disease that affects your senses is going to have a profound effect on such basic concepts as uh, quality of life, depression, um, uh, security. So um, diagnosis and treating early, I think is really very important. Also that work productivity and loss in work productivity, whether you know it's vision related because it takes more time or they can't tolerate their contact lenses or because of you know, their need for surgery, um, you know, that is significantly infected in some of our more advanced keratoconics. And Glaucos has done a lot of good work here, uh, has shown that um, uh, loss of productivity uh, from keratoconus is you know worth hundreds of millions of dollars to society on a yearly basis. Um, so the most feared aspect for a refractive surgeon is for a patient of yours to develop post-refractive surgery ectasia. Uh, I know personally some doctors who have actually stopped operating because of this. Uh, Netta, you're in the uh, probably one of the most visible practices in the country. Um, what would happen or what could happen to a doctor who has a patient develop ectasia after LASIK or PRK? Uh, um, I mean, everything listed here, really, uh, it could truly impact your external reputation, your patient-to-patient -patient referrals. As we all know, refractive surgery, so much of it comes from patient-to-patient -patient referral. And one negative uh, uh, review, uh, especially if it's quite vocal and in, in, in modern age with social media and such, a negative review has far reaching impact. Uh, it could truly impact your, um, your practice in, in a negative way. And then legal malpractice. But be, I think besides this, it's just, again, going back to, we are surgeons, we are cornea specialists, we want to um, do no harm. And you know, putting these um, external uh, issues and, and burdens aside, the internal burden, as you said, there are surgeons who stop doing surgery um, if they develop if they have a patient who develops ectasia because it is iatrogenic um, 
and and if especially if you look back and look at the assessment you you know one did prior to uh, the refractive surgery and find maybe a questionable uh, finding it's heart-wrenching when you see that you have caused that in the patient thank goodness for collagen cross-linking it helps but you've taken a patient who is correctable to 2020 or better with simple contact lenses and glasses and by not being able to pick up that uh, risk factor accurately enough, you know, your refractive surgery could potentially cause uh, loss of best corrective vision in this patient. That's tough to live with. We can't blame our refractive surgeons for the development of keratoconus after LASIK or PRK. It can just happen despite perfect preoperative evaluations. We don't have, we didn't have genetic testing until more recently, but it can still happen. So we can't blame the surgeon for every keratoconus case. That's the first thing. Um, and second of all, if we catch it early, they may end up with best corrective vision acuity of 2020, just a mild refractive error. So the key is um, we want to follow our patients continuously, not let them go away and come back later. But I just don't want us to blame the refractive surgeons if a patient gets ectasia because it's not necessarily their fault. No, that's absolutely that's that's a very good point, uh, Bill. And 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 I I hope I wasn't trying to insinuate that it's it's always our blame. It's or it's or it's rarely ever because I think every refractive surgeon takes every step possible to to uh, do risk stratification. But as you said, our ability to do a very accurate risk stratification may is is not perfect. And uh, even with genetic testing, I think there'll be cases that will uh, you know still develop ectasia uh, even if they are stratified on the lower end of risk, even with genetic testing. You know, the reasonableness of patients obviously varies, but, you know, I've, I've been there, done that. I've had patients who have developed corneal ectasia after refractive surgery. And, and of course, the first thing I do is go back and look at the pre-op exam, right? And, and make, you know, w what did I miss? And if, if, you know, if I, with the patient sitting there, I go back and look at the pre-op exam and if the topography is totally normal and the wavefront analysis is all totally normal and the pachymetry is totally normal and refraction and the IS ratio and yada, 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 everything's totally normal. That is, that is a fairly, you know, much easier discussion with the patient. And if on top of that, I had a normal genetic test, you know, that would be even nicer, you know, so there still will be patients who will develop corneal ectasia, um, you know, when everything is normal, but it's, it's certainly nice to have done all the screening things that you can do before they develop it and then be able to share, you know, with the patient that everything was done as well as it could be done. And, and most patients actually, you know, most patients actually are reasonable when that's the case. At the end of the day, reviewing these topographies and these clinical findings are, 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 are subjective still. There are some objective findings, but they're subjective. Having a, an objective test that documents patient risk factors, I think will go a long way to ameliorating those patients because you mentioned that Bill said that you shouldn't be blamed for it. Well, patients aren't always reasonable when it comes to these issues. And I think it's really important to have objective findings that you can document that you uh, did what was in the patient's best interest. And I think genetic testing will go a long way to making us all feel more comfortable and secure in our decisions revolving around refractive surgery. Liz, you did a great paper you published in JCRS a few years ago about training in residencies. And uh, the majority of ophthalmologists don't perform refractive surgery. Why is that? And um, um, what are your thoughts? Right. I mean, looking at even 
you know, the trends um, from ASCRS, um, 50% of, of ASCRS members are not performing any corneal refractive surgery, whether that is lack of training. Um, so if you are not trained in residency or fellowship, then you're less apt to seek it out, particularly um, if all you're going to receive is, you know, a small course with very limited access to um, eyes and understanding the science behind it and, and the post-operative management thereof. So then, you know, surgeons just decide not to eventually. And now as LASIK and PRK are just refractive volumes really did plummet, you know, for, for quite some time. Um, I think that also affects, um, you know, surgeons wanting to even pick it up. Um, and lastly, the, the, some of the downsides of those who are unhappy with their results speak the loudest. And, and that leads to a fear. Um, and of course, post-LASIK ectasia is, is, is one of those uh, reasons for it. And so for a multitude of reasons, most surgeons are not doing a very high volume and a lot of surgeons aren't doing it at all. How to the fear of a patient's developing coronavirus impacts a, a surgeon's interest in performing corneal refractive surgery? Even in my training, when I was doing my cornea fellowship, it was kind of that big thing that everybody was scared about that if, you know, anybody had any risk factors for it, we, you know, kind of even within a department, all speak with each other, show each other the topographies, tomographies, try to get a good sense of if this is something that we should be worried about or not. And I think what ends up happening is that we become very conservative surgeons because we don't want to create more harm, you know, first do no harm as we're taught. So I think that, you know, a lot of that fear comes from one, not wanting to do more harm than good for our patients. Um, and then two, just our comfort level with these procedures during our training and kind of that, um, that mentality that I think that is passed down. And I think the fear of developing keratoconus in our refractive surgery patients um, affects the confidence, I think, as surgeons. And now that we have more information, we have more diagnostics available to us, even now this genetic testing, again, it's just something else that we can add to our uh, list of tests so that we can be able to then develop that confidence to properly educate patients and to properly um, you know, make recommendations that we think will be best for their vision and their health. Consensus finding number 10. Nine of 13 believe that the fear of patients developing keratoconus is very and extremely significant for the doctor's decision pertaining to corneal refractive surgery. Let's just go over a few different aspects of how we treat keratoconus. Um, can I ask uh, Terry maybe to talk about how you treat keratoconus in your practice? Sure. Uh, well, you know, um, it certainly depends on, on various factors in terms of when you're, you're seeing this in terms of the age of the patient and certainly what they manifest with. Uh, so you see listed here a whole bunch of of treatments, uh, obviously going from more conservative to more invasive. You certainly can put these patients in glasses, contacts. We have a, you know, a whole host of now specialty lenses for keratoconus, including scleral lenses uh, that have really helped these patients to see. However, I think in, in a way it's also done a little bit of a disservice because now I think 
there's a tendency to go ahead and, and improve the vision of these patients, uh, which are of course happy with, but then potentially uh, have a tendency to neglect, um, you know, a progressive disease that can be treated in terms of actually halting the progression. So I think this is an important, uh, you know, uh, awareness step here to make sure you actually treat the uh, underlying disease first in terms of halting the progression before you go on uh, to fitting them with, with glasses, contact lenses, et cetera. So cross-linking, as I mentioned earlier, has really, I mean, it's really blossomed in, in our practice. And that's where, that's what's really opened my eyes in terms of the true increase, increased prevalence of keratoconus. We're seeing a lot of these patients being referred in and we'd like to see them referred in earlier uh, because as the point was made earlier, a lot of these patients already have frank keratoconus. And we tell our patients, certainly it's not gonna reverse it, but it's certainly gonna help prevent the progression. So you don't move on to some of these other uh, treatment modalities. You know, intracorneal ring segments, I think have played a larger role in the international community than it has uh, domestically. You know, we certainly use off-label intact rings uh, uh, to help address keratoconus. And here, I really use it to improve their contact lens fitting. Um, it, there is some evidence to show that also slows progression, but that's how I differentiate in terms of whether to go to cross-link or rings. I will go to cross-linking first um, to halt the disease progression. And then if they can't, or if they're having trouble with contact lens fitting, then consider intracorneal ring segments. Um, I don't really like to treat uh, the refractive error uh, in patients who have uh, keratoconus with, with PRK. I know this has been reported in the literature, but certainly feel more comfortable if they've already had a cross-linking treatment where I'm gonna be more confident that their cornea is gonna be stable. And then, you know, we have our uh, DALK PK patients and, and it's nice uh, that we now have an option of maybe avoiding a full thickness procedure and going with a DALK procedure um, so that we prevent, you know, not only uh, the high risk of graft dehiscence, but also the risk for graft rejection uh, by going with the DL DALK procedure. So uh, we're fortunate to have a lot of treatment options. Um, I think the game changer has been able, uh, for us, has been able to offer cross-linking now as an approved procedure to halt this progression. I, and, I, and I hope that with, with tests like genetic testing and, and other diagnostic tests we have, we can really get patients at an earlier stage to, pre to prevent the progression. You know, I could not agree with you more. It's so frustrating for me to see 18 and 19 year olds coming in with corneas that only are salvageable with a PK or DALC. Uh, we need to be diagnosing these patients earlier and we need to be uh, managing them and, and, and cross-linking them sooner. Um, and my hope would be that eventually, you know, PK and DALC for keratoconus will become like uh, polio, just will cease to exist as we have better treatments that allow us to stop the progression of the disease. How do you handle borderline keratoconus patients with corneal refractive surgery treatments? Um, do you move to PRK or to uh, ICLs, Liz? What is, what is your uh, position here? Um, <laughs> I cross-link them, and generally, I don't do much else after that. Um, I will say that I have done a few PRKs posts, and I'm still following them along. I know that this can be effective. Um, 
and um, patients may not progress, but I'm fairly conservative. I cross-link and medically manage. Okay. Uh, Dick, how often do you convert patients in your practice from LASIK to PRK? Um, national average, I think, is around 20%. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the... I'm in the 15%, as I said before, 10 to 15% range, and uh, maybe 10% of patients where I just uh, discourage refractive surgery altogether. If they actually uh, you know, have progressive keratoconus, you know, then I do crosslink at the earliest possible date. And I think that's the global consensus is that if you write keratoconus on the chart and they're young and, and likely to progress or have progressed, that they deserve to be cross-linked. I, I am comfortable doing what I, what I call refractive cross-linking, which is that if the patient's highly motivated to not only have their keratoconus stabilized, but have the refractive error improved upon, I've had uh, you know, good results in, uh, in patients with uh, you know, intracorneal rings, but also with uh, PRK, but I do it 12 to 18 months after the cross-linking. So that, that's worked well for, for me for, you know, select patients with good informed consent. Yeah, I think topographic lasers have really made an, a significant improvement in our ability to manage some of these patients. And a lot of patients who in the past I was considering doing transplantation, I can now rehabilitate them with a topographic laser after they've been crossing. And I agree with Bill, I do it sequentially. I don't do it at the same time either. I can also comment on the TORIC ICL has been very uh, helpful in some of these patients who uh, you know, have, mo you know, uh, somewhat stable keratoconus with their central cornea, uh, having that more symmetric bow tie after the collagen cross-linking has been done. I think the TORIC ICLs are very uh, safe option, obviously, for these patients. I, like Liz, don't like to do PRK on patients who have keratoconus unless they're older and have demonstrated stability, um, simply because it's unpredictable and uh, the cornea is telling us that it's unstable and, and, and touching that cornea in any way. And we know even uh, a very peripheral limbal relaxing incision can destabilize these corneas. It's hard to imagine that uh, PRK um, you know, won't potentially destabilize them. But Netta, it depends on the level of keratoconus. If they're mild and they yeah. now look pr pretty regular because the crossing is improving the coronal shape, it's a small correction of minus two, minus three. I think PRK is very safe in that group and you're gonna still follow them along and consider repeating cross-linking if they were to progress. I'm not talking about, I think we're all not, we're not talking about patients that have, you know, severe keratoconus with thin corneas. We're not, we're talking about more mild cases that are catching early cross-linking, cross stable, they improve a little bit. It's a small group that can benefit, which is a very small percent, but but they're definitely that group. But if it's, if it's uh, but Bill, if it's like a 21 year old, um, I mean, there's, it, it's obviously not every patient um, it, it's hard to do the risk stratification. I think age has a lot to do with it. As you said, the degree of keratoconus, how progressive it has been. And, and now with genetic testing, having more, more of that information. I think we all agree that patients who um, uh, are keratoconus suspects, we really don't like to do coronary refractive surgery on them, um, LASIK or PRK, unless they've been cross-linked previously. And how often do you think patients are not being referred to you because the referring doctor has ectasia concerns? It depends on your practice. If you're a more of like everyone here performs cross-linking, so we're going to get those referrals, whether it's for refractive surgery or cross-linking. But if you're a LASIK center, 
and you don't really offer cross-linking, those patients will get diverted away from the practice to a cross-linking center. So um, I think that's, I think that can happen. So, you know, so I think um, the, the, the optometrist or ophthalmologist that is identifying this is gonna to try to decide who's a good candidate, who's not, and, and figure out who to refer to. You know, along those lines, I mean, one thing that I'd like to say is it's, you know, it's great where it's a community like Miami or New York City, where there's so much education of the uh, community ODs that's happening, but it's not happening everywhere. So we're getting these patients for referrals for potential cross-linking when they've already kind of demonstrated progression, where they're no longer best correctable in glasses, where they require you know, something more rigid or like a hybrid, so some kind of therapeutic contact lens, that those are the patients that need to be referred in earlier, the better, if that makes sense, or they're requiring changes because their fit's not right. All of those are subtle um, symptoms that they are progressing in their keratoconus, even if curvature isn't demonstrating it because their curvature has been masked. I think a, a lot of optometrists, um, who aren't completely comfortable with refractive corneal surgery will are telling my patients sometimes to wait until they're 30 years old to have laser surgery because they're worried about them developing ectasia. Um, having a genetic marker that allowed us to quantitate the risk for these patients, I think make convince a lot of referring doctors that it's okay to have refractive surgery at an earlier age because the patient does not have significant risk for developing ectatic disease. Kind of an important patient group is the patient that becomes contact lens intolerant. And that, that, that's a broad definition, but there are roughly 3 million patients, 6 million eyes a year that put their contact lenses in the drawer every year. And uh, most of them, uh, for one reason or another, don't actually get offered the option of refractive surgery. I don't know whether genetic testing will change that, but... Um, that it would be nice if it did that so that those patients would be given an alternative rather than going back to spectacles. Consensus finding number 11. Nine of 13 believe that the average corneal refractive surgery candidate is not at all informed about keratoconus and related risk factors. So as we recognize, keratoconus is not that orphan disease of one in 2000. The incidence can be extremely common, upwards of one in um, five patients that we're seeing, which is unlikely, but we do have a very diverse population in the U.S. With that being said, there the uh, understanding of it is becoming better, but it has very severe implications, and now we have treatments for it. Um, uh, particularly with cross-linking. Um, and then the diagnostic side of it, having better insight can help to guide our decisions um, and diagnosing earlier can help us treat our patients um, earlier as well. I am so excited uh, that in ophthalmology, one of the things that has been really missing in our field has been genetic testing. And my background uh, is genetic uh, or microbiology and molecular genetics. And, and I remember coming into ophthalmology and really wondering when is this gonna become a bigger part of our field? And I think uh, there is no question that keratoconus uh, is one that's most understood uh, as far as its genetic um, background and genetic uh, links. And to have now an opportunity to take advantage of diagnostic tool and genetic testing to do risk stratification for our refractive patients and also to 
uh, be able to detect early keratoconics uh, so that we can offer collagen cross-linking earlier than later. Uh, it just makes sense. It, it, it uh, brings us full circle in offering the patients a much more comprehensive approach for keratoconus treatment, as well as a much more safe and thoughtful approach for refractive surgery. As we continue to understand this complex disease, be open to embracing new technology that will allow us to do that. And it is just offering a service to our patients to provide them with um, the best uh, care that we can. Keratoconus, I think we'd all agree, is currently underdiagnosed. And it's difficult to diagnose. And it'd be wonderful if we could diagnose this pa patient with keratoconus at an earlier stage, since we have such effective treatments, including cross-linking. So we have new technologies, including um, epithelial mapping that isn't being used, corneal biomechanics, and genetic testing that can be implemented that hopefully allow us to diagnose these patients earlier and treat earlier. First, I'll say that I have also, uh, you know, uh, been convinced. I think that the incidence of keratoconus is certainly higher than that's been previously understood. And, and, and uh, obviously with the advent of gen genetic testing, that, that number may continue to change. I think one comment to keep in mind is that the Avagen test is not only uh, going to include keratoconus testing, but it also has included testing for the TGF beta uh, stromal dystrophies. And, uh, you know, at Duke, we took part of a large clinical trial evaluating the incidence of, of these tests. And, and granted, it's not high in our area, but if you look internationally, especially in Asia, the incidence of these dystrophies are very high. And I've had an opportunity to, to go to Korea where Dr. E.K. Kim has probably one of the largest series of refractive surgery exacerbated stromal dystrophy. So, you know, what we want to do here with, with, with tests like these, and I've seen the impact of tests like these in terms of preventing these complications uh, in many patients, because these are site-threatening complications, uh, as is keratoconus. So I'm excited that we, we are going to see perhaps a paradigm shift in terms of what we're doing in our clinics, as, as, as I think Bill pointed out, the, the beauty of this test is it, there's no capital cost, it's not gonna take up space. And I think just like we're talking about trying to improve the access of corneal topography to all our eye care providers, especially our op optometrists, uh, to be able to give access, full access to a test like this for, for all our eye care providers is gonna be exciting. It's gonna be changing the way we identify and these risk factors uh, for various diseases in the cornea. You know, genetic testing has lagged a little bit in ophthalmology as far as uh, its application and usefulness. And uh, I think a lot of us thought retina might lead here, but uh, it may well turn out that, that uh, the cornea and corneal refractive surgeon uh, may actually be the person who can first really take good advantage of genetic testing and apply it in a meaningful fashion and impact, uh, you know, our therapeutic recommendations and, and treatment patterns. So, so I'm kind of excited to see genetic testing, you know, get a toehold into ophthalmology. And I'm, I'm even more excited that it may be we corneal surgeons who uh, kind of lead that uh, effort. I think this is really an example of the old adage that knowledge is power and genetic testing is going to empower us as clinicians to make better decisions for our patients. And, and I'm very excited about having genetic testing becoming a reality in the field of cornea and refractive surgery.